Hi, this is Megan Davis, and you're listening to Stories Create Me, a podcast that explores the stories that we tell that make up our present day and eventually are going to influence our future. Each month, I explore a topic with a special guest. The topic varies, but the sentiment is always the same. The stories we tell become our future. And so, won't you join us as this narrative unfolds? I'm Dr. John Plackett. I'm director of Coolf, which is a smart web company. And we work with businesses with their processes and try and automate as much as possible and use cool tech to you know, give them a bit of an advantage. And I'm also head of AI Lab, which is um, a new company really around educating people around artificial intelligence, debunking a lot of the myths, education, stories, and events. People who don't really have a good grasp of AI can start to learn about it and hopefully use it in their business and um, you know get a good appreciation for it. AI Lab is quite new, is that right? It's just about to launch fully to the public. We've been running workshops for um, a couple of years now with it, um, but we, in the background, kind of, we've been building an online experience so that people can get AI news and learn more about it. So that's really exciting, and we've been working really hard towards that. One of the more popular shows that's been on television recently is Westworld, that yep. delves into questions around artificial intelligence and a world where we have fully sentient, intelligent beings that aren't human, that they're, yes. they're something that's been constructed. One of the questions that was raised in the show that really struck me and that I can't shake is uh, when, when one of the main characters first arrived at Westworld, he was shown into a room where he could choose whatever clothes he wanted to wear, whatever hats, and felt everything was laid out. And then he turned and he looked at the woman who was the hostess who showed him into the room and he said, are you real? And she said, if you can't tell, does it matter? Uh, and I thought that was a really interesting question, especially now that things like Google Assistant is out there on the scene. And I read recently that now if someone's using that service, that the artificial intelligence assistant has to say that it's, that's what it is. Or there has to be some sort of knowledge that the person's interacting with an artificial intelligence. Yeah, right. So there was a lot of pushback. Yeah. for that to happen um, you know people felt really uncomfortable with it mm. and probably and probably rightfully so I think it's a very interesting area of AI and I think in some cases doesn't really help AI as a field at the moment because it kind of feeds into this narrative that you know we're very close to having sentient AI which we're not we, you know we're so far away from it it's, it's sort of laughable um, but you know we are seeing some AI being, you know, much better than us or as good as us in certain focused areas like, you know, the the Google Assistant phoning up a hairdresser to make an appointment. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of scarily, like, real, really. Mm -hmm. 
even though the AI has no real understanding of what it's doing, you know, to us, it's very scary. And I think, you know, for people interacting with robots and the current state of AI, you know, it's quite disconcerting, right? You know, I think there's a lot of discussion at the moment around the ethics of AI mm. towards that. Toward, you know, should we be building robots that look like us? You know, you know the Sophia, the robot that's been given citizenship, is made to look like us to make it seem like the robot is perhaps a lot more intelligent than the actual software inside. And it's bringing up some really big ethical questions and people yeah. feel, feel really uncomfortable with it. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, yeah. I mean, for me, I think the, the question is, what do we want from our AI? And if it's to have immersive gaming situations like Westworld, um, you know, where people can live out their fantasies, then maybe we do. But it's very clear about what you're dealing with. If it's in everyday life, like, you know, AI assistance helping us, then probably we do need to know that, you know, we're dealing not with a person. Technology is there to help us. You know, the, the very human nature, the humanness of us, um, when we're interacting with other humans is a completely different level than if we're interacting with an AI that really has no sense of feeling, understanding what it's doing, um, compassion, empathy. You know, it has none of those things. And so we can use that. Actually, that can be an advantage in some situations. You know, mm -hmm. companion robots, for instance, companion AI. Sometimes people might want to talk to a robot or a bot that has no understanding and so therefore is not judgmental. But I think, you know, when we're being, we don't like to be fooled. I think when it really comes down to it, that's the way we feel because we would interact differently if we knew that it was a robot. When I was visiting my dad in Florida, he has two robots, two Roombas. Right. That sweep his floors. So he's got one that does the wet and then one that does the dry. And cool. um, when they're, you know, working in their little team, <laughs> cleaning, <laughs> yeah. you know, cleaning the floor, polishing, and then sweeping up the dirt, um, he talks to them and he gives him, they have names and they actually have a relationship. So he's created an entire world for these robots. And yeah. so it's big brother and little sister. Big brother's the big <laughs> vacuum. Right. And, and little sister is the the polisher who does the wet, like, white polishing of the floor. And then he talks to them, like, oh, you did a good job. Oh, look, he's done this. Or, you know, he, he kind of evaluates their work. And if they're getting tired and they're <laughs> running out of battery, he, like, helps them out, helps them find their home, you know. And... And it's like it's amazing the relationship that he's about he's developing with these little you know sweepers these little floor sweeper robots and yeah and so it makes me think about the you know the artificial intelligence and getting to a point where you know we have to disclose you're actually speaking to you know you're not speaking to a person or you're not interacting with a person but then I'm wondering as these become more complicated as these you know, experiences become more complicated, will people, will we not care as much? Look at the relationship people have with their phones. So it doesn't even need to be a robot for people to, you know, um, feel very close to 
cars are a great example for you know ever since cars were invented people have given mm. them names and looked after them and you know in some cases treated them you know better than family yeah. um you know wrapping them up at night and cleaning them and you know so i think we've always as humans we've always had that um and uh you know talking about stories uh, we create those narratives around machines we always have done that and i I guess the difference with ai obviously is that it can interact at a different level so even with the roombas you know you can stand in front of it and it will go around you as if it knows you know because it knows you're there and so you start to get a little bit of a closer relationship or a different relationship with it, should we say. Mm. Mm. Um, and I, I think there is a danger that, you know, to be serious just for a second around this, long term, mm. I think there is a real danger of making robots in our own image um, mm. to, to the extent that we can't tell the difference. Because mm. one thing that we're really good at through, you know, evolution is usually reading other humans and, you know, that the, the way that we can um, semi-predict what they're going to do because obviously we know ourselves and we've yeah. been, we're, you know, we're good at recognizing facial signs. We're, we're, we're quite good at reading people generally. You know, yeah. we get fooled quite a lot of the time by people that want to con you and stuff like that but generally we're quite good at spotting stuff and forming relationships and the danger is that um you know robots by their very nature and ai by its very nature is manipulated by the program um inside it and so there's a real danger then if you start building robots in the um, image of a human um that you know people can be manipulated by them much easier mm. because mm. they build a trust with it and yeah. you know the robot's never going to tire <laughs> you know so yeah. it could pretend to be your friend for you know decades whereas humans you know wear down eventually and go okay yeah. well I'm not really your friend you know I was just trying yeah. to con you whereas <laughs> a robot will never give up and so yeah. you know there's some real dangers here I think yeah. um, in all seriousness whether yeah. we'll care you know, in the long run, it's like all technology. It gets embedded into our life, and mm. we accept it more and more. So I think we will see more human-like robots in certain, and AI in certain aspects of our life. But I think mm. generally there'll be quite a lot of pushback. You work a lot in ethics with clients or running workshops to educate people around... The ethics, the ethical aspects of using AI, or or yeah. the research um, aspects. Yeah. So we we you know the, the education of AI generally look in in I think it's quite difficult at the moment because AI is all over the place and everyone feels like they should know what AI is. So I always go back to the basics and say, okay, well, what what are we talking about when we're talking about artificial intelligence? Um, and you know, it's very complicated because defining what intelligence is is a difficult task in the first instance, you know, to do with humans Mm -hmm. and animals. And then to say what artificial intelligence is is even harder because, you know, we haven't got a good definition for normal intelligence. Um, And so, you know, the lofty field, the lofty goal of AI 
to me as a researcher, you know, I, I started my AI um, in AI um, in the mid '90s. I've you know been doing it for a long time, and mm. it was always about creating um, machines that had um, that could do the stuff that we could do. You know, a multi-purpose intelligent machine that was really good at lots of tasks like we are and really AI now means a system that's really focused and very good at one thing like playing chess or playing go or recognizing cats in pictures Mm -hmm. Um, and you know that's where we've seen a lot of the real success in AI Um, with that though um, means that um, has come businesses have been able to use AI. You know, that's mm-hmm. the other thing. We've got this tool set now that businesses can tap into. And if they've got lots of data, they can throw it at the at these AI systems. It's not quite as easy as that, by the yeah. way. <laughs> <laughs> but they can use these AI systems and all this huge processing power that we've got in the cloud and extract predictions and extract um, unseen statistics from the data that they've got. Um, but there are some huge ethical, ethical issues around that because really, you know, um, these AI systems, because they're trained on lots of, of um, data that we give them, they're really a mirror. They reflect back the society and the data that you feed them. And so inherent in that is, um, for instance, bias mm. against certain groups. Um, depending on what you're feeding the system in the first place. And so it's really important that people know that as well. It's interesting that, you know, now that we have this understanding of how our actions influence our creations or what we're creating, we're taking deeper looks into ourselves. I mean, I think, you know, we seem to be entering this very self-reflective period of, what are my unconscious biases or how yeah. how is history being told and historically the way we have talked about this event is that actually true and we're 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 picking things apart more and examining things more closely and uh there's becoming this new it's probably not new but the way that we're approaching a lot of things we're we're challenging our our own thinking and i think that's exciting um I, I think that's a good thing. and But we also then feel a little bit less secure because perhaps the, you know, the way that we thought about, I don't know, the, the Revolutionary War in the U.S., maybe that, you know, maybe yeah. that was planted slightly, you, you know. Um, uh, or so, you know, things like big historical events down to just, you know, how, how why why do we have this situation in our hiring where we have, you know, 80% white male why is that happening you know so it's uh yeah it's taking lots of different forms but you can you can see it everywhere and we're becoming more conscious about what happens with our data when we're sharing it what we're doing online you know this is this is escalating everywhere you know i think this the the whole um ai driven world that we live in and it's weird to say that, right? Because a lot of the AI that we see um, or that we interact with, we don't know. 
about, and it goes back to what you said earlier, do we care? You know, mm-hmm. it, when um, personal voice assistants on, on phones, you know, email spams, they're, um, sorry, Ian, spam filters in emails, um, you know, they're so ingrained in our life that we just take them for granted. And, you know, there's all this AI recommendation engines on e-commerce websites, you know, GPS systems that plot the best routes for you in your car and when you're walking and the health apps that are tracking everything and predicting, you know, if you're going to get ill or have, you know, something go wrong with you. Um, you know, all of these things are becoming embedded in our life. So, like you say, things are being reflected back to us as well that we never really realised. And if you look at how, I wouldn't say how easily people are manipulated, because mm-hmm. I think that's that's not really fair. But I think that when you look at the sheer amount of data that can be collected on people and then used to influence you, put you in, um, you know, some kind of bias bubble that just reinforces your views to take certain actions, like we're seeing in America, I think, with um, Trump. You know, it makes people uncomfortable, right? Mm -hmm. It really does. And the fact that, you know, people are being influenced, maybe for the first time they realise they're being influenced. Look, this has been happening all the time. Marketing people have been Mm -hmm. doing doing this for years. Through TV ads, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? So it's nothing new. It's no. just the scale now. And yeah. But also that I think what's really unsettling now is that it's that micro-targeting that goes on when we don't realise it. So yeah. you know that little ad that pops up, or even on websites now, the change in the way that the the story, the narrative, is fed to you. Yeah. Um, that influences you along a journey that, you know, maybe you didn't choose. And I think yeah. we're going to see a lot more of that. You know, we really are. And then that's why it's important, I think, that, you know, we have a lot more transparency and, you know, the ethical side of all of this is really put out there. And I guess we put our foot down a little bit and say, look, you know, mm. this is really important that we know this is happening to us. It really is. Yeah. You know, we like to think that we've got free will but you know really we're being fed stuff that makes us happy then feeds back into the algorithm which so we get shown more and more of the same stuff and you know i i almost think to be honest in 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 the storytelling that we get when we're just web browsing that we Mm. should be made to feel more uncomfortable to be honest (laughs) not more comfortable because that means we're seeing stuff that you know that um, maybe goes against some of our views, as long as it's not fake. So with this pervasiveness of of creating these bubbles, these, these soft, comfortable, I guess, marketing bubbles, um, you know, how do, how do we, we're mindful of it, how do we start breaking out of that, or how do we push back, or how do we use artificial intelligence to maybe counteract that I mean what are the you know what are the options out there for us so one of the first things I think you can do is you know really start thinking about how your data is used how you're you know when you're logged in so it's very simple things that you can do mm-hmm. in the first instance things like if you're logged into your email online 
don't use that same browser to then surf the web because they're probably collecting where you're browsing when you're logged in to a service. So any, you know, any of the social media sites, if you're logged in in one browser, use a different browser that you're not logged into anything to browse. That's the, you know, things like that make a difference to your experience online. You'll see yeah. that ads will be different. You know, protect your privacy. Don't accept everything that's just put in front of you. So I think that's one of the, one of the first things that you can do and the easiest things that yeah. you can do. I do think that AI eventually will be used to counter some of this as well. You know, it's always the way. Right? It's always the the money <laughs> where the money is is where where you get the the most innovation first right. off. And you know, obviously selling products. So you know, being recommended things that you don't really want when you're shopping for something, although you do really want it because, you know, it's very similar to stuff that you've had or you've always wanted and the machine knows that, yeah. you know, through your habits that, well, yes, you really want that. Um, <laughs> that's yeah. always going to be um, the first thing, I guess, that people um, are, or that companies are going to spend a lot of money on. Um, yeah. But I do think there will be a big marketplace for AI tools that counter that as well. So maybe okay. an AI, your own AI that identifies that you're being profiled and targeted in a certain way and can counter that. So it works both ways, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think we see that in security as well. So, mm. you know, AI being used to infiltrate and try and find clever ways to um, you know, maybe break into computers or um, mm. do wrong, we'll mm. find AI that is protecting and mm. always trying to look after us. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's really interesting. Mm. But I think, you know, the first thing that people can do is get educated. I, I always say to yeah. people, don't, don't be afraid to read up about AI and don't be afraid to read up and get a wide view on what's going on. Don't just rely on the news headlines as well, because a lot of them are clickbait. The primary fear around automation has always been job loss. So, you know, one of your, your talks is about jobs of the future. Yeah. Um, so maybe you could explore that a little bit. Look, it's really, look, it's one of, probably one of the, you know, I'd love to talk about AI. And I love to talk about, um, you know, the, the algorithms and where, you know, all the cool stuff that's being done. But yeah. inevitably, the, the, the question I get asked most is, you know, well, what about jobs? What's yeah. going to happen around automation? And, um, you know, are we all going to be out of a job? And look, no one knows. That's the real, mm. that's the real answer. Um, mm -hmm. no one knows. So I think one thing that's, I guess quite clear is that maybe looking back on history is probably not the best prediction for where we are um, now. So if you look yeah. at the Industrial Revolution and we look at the um, the automation in the in the fields, you know, with um, hand-drawn um, carts being replaced by tractors and all of that stuff and people, you know, obviously we know that there's not as many people working in the fields now mm -hmm. that they moved into the cities and worked in factories. 
Um, but there were still jobs, right? Because if you create a car, then there's a whole new set of skills and jobs that never existed before, like crash repairers and custom mm-hmm. car makers. So even though the car manufacturers can use robots to put cars together, there's still this whole other industry around tires and wheels and, um, you know, racing cars and, you know, all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. What's different, I think, with AI is that it replaces some jobs that are not physical, they're mental tasks. And mm-hmm. so that's going to start encroaching in middle management and those kind of jobs as well. And yeah. I think, you know, if you think about government that's has a, has a large workforce around that area about making decisions and um, looking at data and predicting and putting workflows in place for the for the cities and the people, then some of that work is rife in the for automation in the AI age. And that's something that we've never really seen before. We'll see some of those jobs go. The question is, what do we do about it? A lot of people would say that we can work alongside the robots. Oh, mm-hmm. and I, I, I don't mean to call them robots, but the, the kind of AI automated systems, I don't really know what to call them. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a robot sat, sat next to you. Uh, um, but these systems, and we can, they, they'll augment what we do. And I think, you know, we have to make a decision, right? The, the future isn't set yet. That's down to us to decide what future we want to create. Mm-hmm. If we want to automate and remove lots of jobs, then we need to figure out what we're going to do, how people are going to survive with no wages coming in. Or we say, okay, well, we're not going to lose lots of jobs. We're just going to augment humans and, and free up that the repetitive tasks that humans do in the workplace and allow them to be more creative and use them, use the human skills a lot yeah. more. And I think we'll see that. Actually, my thoughts on it are that I think we'll see a lot of companies embracing the human aspect again uh-huh. and putting those skill sets that we have that computers don't to really good use to provide awesome customer support and interactions and freeing up that time to really, you know, if you listen to any startup, right, um, that's producing a product, they always say, go and talk to your users. Find out what they want. Mm -hmm. No one's got any time to do that. (laughs) But the good startups, the good businesses do that. They go and talk to their users, find out what the users want, and they listen to their users all the time. And I think, you know, imagine being able to free up Mm. those tasks the email, the accounts, you know, all those tasks and so that you can just totally focus on what users want and then apply emerging tech to solve problems. You know, we can create millions of jobs that way in areas that we've never thought possible. That's what I'd like to see. To be able to get insights from data, high-dimensional data, with lots of variables, we actually do find that quite difficult to do. And, you know, AI will be able to do that a lot quicker for us. And so, yeah, just becoming, you know, it sounds like a utopia, right? That we can yeah. <laughs> leave all of that and do whatever we want. But, I, you know, one of the things that I talk about 
or have spoken about in the past is why can't we have and utilize technology to do that and come, I guess, back to our communities a little bit more. So one of the things that I think is really interesting is, um, and, you know, related to emerging tech rather than AI is microgrids for, say, power, where communities generate their own power from renewables and then sell it to each other. So if you've got uh, a house that's in full sun all the time, you kit the house out with solar panels, and then the people behind you that are in shade, maybe they grow vegetables, and Mm. you exchange goods again. Um, Mm. And, you know, we can use tech to do that. Things can be exchanged on blockchain or some other kind of ledger, tech ledger. And then, you know, if people, why can't people then sell those in the, sell that those goods within the community and the communities become you know self-sustaining in, in in a lot of ways you know so that's one view of the future and people can start up companies as well doing what they want to do which is interesting because that future looks like our past you know i think we romanticize it for a reason people used to all work for themselves essentially so 200 years ago, my ancestors were farmers. They owned their farm or they rented the land from someone who owned it. But they were the decision makers in their lives for, for the most part. And they maybe didn't have as much mobility around what they could do because there were constraints, obviously. Yeah. Um, so the society wasn't as mobile, but you still were working on, and in producing things and seeing the output of what you produce, and then you were trading locally with other people, and you had these ecosystems that I think we find really pleasing. I can imagine a lot of people listening to this going, "Oh no, that that just sounds like a nightmare." You know, yeah, that yeah. I don't, you know, want to engage with my with my neighbours and my community. You know, that's why I come home late at night in the dark and then run to my front door. But I think, you know, we've lost some of that for a start. And, and I'm not really suggesting that, that that works for everyone, but it does work mm. for some people, right? Mm. And mm. the thing is, it's all about choice. And so, you know, if you think about the way that we, um, you know, are working and living in this distributed world at the moment, for people that want to still engage in creative arts in a community around producing things for what we call work, a job, that can be done remotely as well. And so it's just about freeing up the time and having the flexibility to do things. And that it is a lot of those repetitive tasks that stop us, you know, doing the, the real meaty tasks that we mm. really enjoy. And so I think, you know, we need to look at that and see how we can leverage AI to work with us rather than totally replace us. When we were talking before about, you know, these ethical issues around knowing, you know, what you're dealing with. So as far as is this a person, is this an algorithm, is this, you know, what is this exchange really about? and ensuring that we have a space where we understand this is what this type of intelligence does and this is what human intelligence does? Is it also about creating systems and frameworks for understanding or or segmenting types of intelligence or what should be where and what we sh- how we should think about this or questions we should be asking? 
Look, I think we should definitely be asking how our data is being used to, look, we've already spoken about how it how it's used to manipulate us through fake news and mm-hmm. through micro-targeting adverts. I think there's a wider issue. Suddenly I've got very serious <laughs> because there's, there's, there's a really, I think, very real concern amongst a lot of us who know how much data is being consumed by big corporations and pieced together. There's some really real issues around things like insurance, for instance. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all these fitness apps that people use that are measuring heart rate all the time. And yes, they're, you know, they're, it's absolutely brilliant. You get mm-hmm. a benefit as the individual from those to see your progress. You've really got to be asking yourself, well, where is that data going? If you're using a free app to track all your fitness goals and the food that you're eating and your heart rate and your weight and height, you know, when you're and, and you're adding notes about when you're feeling not so good and when you're feeling good, mm-hmm. if you're using free software to do that, it's free for a reason, and that's probably because all your data is being collated and sold to third parties. There's real issues around this because who are those third parties? In the past, a, a lot of it's gone to marketing people for, you know, adverts, for yeah. predicting what they can sell, when they can sell it, peaks and troughs, all of that kind of stuff. But yeah. what if that data gets into the hands of insurers, health, health insurance providers? Yeah. Um, suddenly, you can't get health insurance because... Yeah. You know, that's been, that data's been gone through and predicted that you're likely to have a heart attack in five years and they won't touch you. And so, you know, I think that's when, when we're talking around these systems, they're the kind of issues that people should be aware of. And, you know, when you think about autonomous vehicles or not even autonomous vehicles, but, you know, new cars that, you know, have these smart systems in them that every time you brake, they register and log how you brake, how hard you brake, you know, where you are on the road. Imagine that data being used. At the moment, you know, you can say, well, the car feeds back and, you know, makes me safer. That's great. You know, that's mm-hmm. what you want it to do. But imagine if that data was then fed to insurance providers and they said, look, the way that you drive, we're not going to insure you anymore. I think one of the issues around all of this is that we don't have a backup plan at the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, we have all this data that's going out into the world. You know, we've seen people being hired or not based on their social media profiles, for instance, Mm -hmm. you know, and the way that they present, you know, documentation and their footprint across Mm -hmm. the web. You know, we don't have a backup plan for that. People were brought up in in, in the, the first generation of people on social media to share, 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 share without worrying about any of this. And the trouble is you can't get that data back. It's out there now. And so there's bias in the processes that are used around the data. And so I think it's really just about educating around that and, Mm. you know, what's acceptable. What's acceptable use of people's data, Mm -hmm. Um, especially when they didn't know that it was ever going to be used this way. Yeah.
Yeah. You know, it's a very interesting question. And, so, and, you know, we don't really have answers for it at the moment. We don't have a government. Government traditionally doesn't move quickly, but it also, in context of how fast technology evolves versus how quickly decision-making happens, where, you know, where we can impact laws and regulations, so out of sync. And so what do we do in the meantime? Because you look at things like what just happened in Europe with um, all the new privacy laws. And, yeah. and it, but that the response time there appeared quick. It appeared to be on the surface of quite a, that they were, you know, looking into things quickly. But the reality is, is that, that a lot had to happen and had been happening for a very long time before it became critical. And so, yes. you know, now we're moving... Well, and also, sorry, they, they also had a very strong privacy regulation to start with, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, you know, the new privacy laws were already um, underpinned by actually quite a lot of strong privacy rules in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so countries starting from scratch, are, you know, or that don't have that foundation are even further behind where do you think Australia sits if we look at where it sits in the scale of really great response laws, thinking, or preparation to hasn't done anything? No, well, I think we're way behind. You know, as a developed country, I we're scarily behind. And it, but it depends what you're looking at. For me, as someone that loves tech and can see lots of really useful and exciting things that tech can give us. Mm. I really believe that we need to get our policy procedures into gear, really. Because Mm. if you look at the countries that are doing really well around the emerging tech, and especially the AI field, Mm -hmm. they've really set their stall out to say, okay, well, we want to be a world leader in this area, say health, for instance, Mm -hmm. AI in health. You know, we have some great data that's freely available or is available, and we're going to really lead the world on AI in this area. And, of course, you know, in Australia, we've got some really good areas that we can focus on. You know, renewable energy is a, is a great one to start with. I think agriculture is another one. Health yeah. is another one. You know, we have a really good history of all of those things. But until you have a really strong government policy around the way that you collect data, the way that you can use data, the techniques that are acceptable or where what's acceptable and what isn't, businesses can't really invest too heavily in it. Because what we see is without those guidelines, if something happens and something goes wrong somewhere, then the knee-jerk reaction and regulation comes in over the top and shuts innovation down. And that's what I'm fearful of. We're living in a world where all this data is being collected and stored, and unless it's stored properly, it gets leaked. And we see that, and and the trouble is that, you know, we're not talking about, you know, a a small pen drive of data being leaked. We're we're talking about everybody's data being leaked. And so there does need to be some policy around how companies use, gather, use, and protect customer data. 
and you know there's some transparency in letting the customer know how their data is being protected and used and if we have that then that's great then businesses can just go ahead and do what they need to do to really create some awesome systems to do some awesome things but until that time it's very difficult because if you invest all that time and effort and then regulation comes in and says you are no longer allowed to do this yeah then that's a very difficult situation to be in and so i think we'll find you know the countries that have really set their stall out put policy in place defined regulation that doesn't stifle innovation they're really gonna um, you know they've got a massive head start and like you said yeah. this tech moves really quickly right so yeah. the longer you leave it the further behind you get and the harder it is to catch up yeah so yeah it's a, it's a I, I want us in Australia to do better the way that people are interested in it it's mm. phenomenal really mm. you know it's AI's move from this highly technical research-based discipline to mainstream and it's yeah. fantastic I absolutely love it but you know there are dangers around it because of the sheer amount of data that you know is required to do the really cool stuff and we just need to make sure that we protect people and protect their privacy and you know use that data in an ethical way and you you keep mentioning um, the really cool stuff. Like, what what is your top top of the line coolest uh, thing or outcome that you see happening or would want to happen in the space of AI? There's two things that really uh, I think are amazing, and one of them isn't necessarily AI. I think you know I lump AI in with emerging tech. Um, as well so I mm. think you know one of my most favorite things at the moment is all the work around exoskeletons to help with mobility so whether that be allowing humans to do tasks that they've never really been able to do like lift really heavy things or run you know very far I love I love all of that I think that's incredible mm. but the work now that's going on to enable people that can't walk to be able to stand again with mm. a you know an exoskeleton suit on i just find that not only incredible but so amazing what an amazing use of tech that mm. is and i think you know when we're now seeing that those suits being plugged into neural pathways so that the movements can be controlled by the brain you know it's brilliant i love that and i think that we should do more of that kind of tech to mm. help um, people mm. from an ai point of view i love the fact that my inbox isn't filled up with spam messages mm -hmm. is that like really like rubbish <laughs> <laughs> probably not what you're expecting you're expecting something like really really brilliant yeah but i think you know it's those little things that you yeah. don't even realize that just make your life so much easier on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think, uh, you know, you're talking about the education aspect. I, a lot of, so the, the concept that a lot of people seem to have around AI, AI is that 
it's this 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 automated kind of robot that's going to come in and take your job. Like it has almost this this menacing humanoid type experience around it. Um, and but in fact, it's the parts of it that are really good that are already working work so well that you don't notice it. It's just but but yeah. anything if it works well you don't notice it and you take it for granted and if it doesn't work well and you're like why can't I get this stupid speaker to connect to the thing you know like that <laughs> we'll plug in a USB shit. yes yeah yeah like, why is this not why isn't it reading the speaker why isn't that working then this is where we get frustrated with technology we're like technology exactly. is another layer of crap I have to deal with you know <laughs> it's <laughs> well, exactly it's all around us. But the things that work really well feel seamless, and we don't even realize it's there, um, and which is, is good and bad, as we've been saying. You know, if you, if you don't realize it's there and you're handing over, like, tons of things about yourself that you don't necessarily want someone to know, that's bad. But, yeah, if you're um, able to walk again or just have a really good, clean inbox, it's just like, oh, you know, amazing. From my point of view, what I'd really like to see now is AI being used for good a lot more. Mm. For instance, you know, issues around homelessness, maybe identifying vacant spaces or predicting where homelessness is going to take place and then services being put in early to stop it happening, you Mm. know. And things can be predicted, right? For instance, you know, the job market, people foreclosures on houses and you know you can predict some of these things and AI can be used to predict those areas where this might happen and then extra services can go in early to help prevent it or Mm -hmm. or at least provide support so I'd like to see a lot more of that going on so is one of the barriers lack of monetization so how do we how do we monetize this uh, or is it the regulation issues around all gathering all this data that that could be confidential or sensitive to, to allowing this to be used more or more likely to be used, or is it just that people don't understand this is something that can that can happen? Yes, all of those. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good point, right? So, how do you get that data in the first place? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, a lot of the data is available to big companies already. You know, that's how they predict, you know, um, insurance insurance prices and, you know, how, how you're going to be charged in certain areas above other areas. And I think yeah. from a, a monetary point of view, you know, one of the things that I think we need to start looking at really seriously is the ultimate cost, the long-term cost versus the short-term cost. So we know that it costs less to keep people out of prison than it does to put them in prison for a long time. Um, but we just don't have the things in place to try and stop that. And obviously the long-term effect of homelessness on society is is expensive in many ways, mm. not just monetary. Mm. And so that upfront investment in systems that can maybe try and help that is, in my opinion, a really good investment for governments. So there's, you know, those sort of things can can be done through incentive schemes and, you know, don't necessarily have to be a huge or generate a huge profit. 
It's also job creation, right? So the job creation, yeah. Yeah, because we were talking before about how AI, the fear is, the dominant narrative is that the robots are going to come and take our jobs. Um, but, in fact, if we have all these abilities to predict or proactively assist situations as opposed to allowing them to happen and then we deal with, we have to deal with aftermath. If you have people yeah. who are on top of situations and then there's a mobilized workforce, you go out and say, you know, all right, so we need to talk to these people. We need to understand what's going on. We need to either you know, relocate, re-educate, uh, assist, provide, whatever we can. But they, this is, you know, while data can help them understand a situation, only talking to the people that, that they need to help are yeah. just going to help, is actually going to solve the problem. They have to be yeah. able to have meaningful conversations. And that's what people do really well. This is what we're good at. We do it really well, right? <laughs> we do it really well. <laughs> yeah. that's, what, what we're, that's what we're good at. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's fulfilling. Mm. You know, if you if you talk to doctors, I was lucky enough to talk to a, a, um, a surgeon last night, um, um, you know, who travels abroad um, and, you know, does does operations mm -hmm. in remote um, places to, to help communities. And he was saying that, you know, he'll do operations maybe 12 a day, right, wow. for 12 hours. And I said to him, I've always wondered how you feel at the end of that. You know, you're on your feet all day. You're doing a really high, that's a, you know, you're, you're repairing people. That's a very skillful, focused job. You yeah. know, how do you feel at the end of 12 hours? And he said, elated, you know, mm. and that's like, that's incredible. Yeah. And because he's, you know, giving back and helping people and he's not burdened I think when he's away by you know maybe politics or maybe the um, you know the world that we have around us he's mm -hmm. just focused on doing good for that 12 hours nothing else to worry about and yeah like I think we can use tech to hopefully free up some of our time to allow all of us to do that kind of thing and there's a huge incentive, I think, for governments to, you know, provide that kind of funding or support for companies mm. that want to do that. We're moving into a space where people are becoming more and more disillusioned with systems. Um, we have people who are increasingly probably getting disgruntled with feeling disenfranchised, unheard, left out. And... If we're able to harness that energy and put it somewhere where we are creating demands on the government to provide actual resources, so rather than, you know, being the person who's saying, why don't I have this, why don't I have that, I'm going to yeah. go out and make an emotional voting decision that might later not be the best, the best decision, yeah. but, you know, um, but at the time it made sense. But if you have, um, if you have a government that's, proactively solving problems and finding new and innovation, innovative ways to, to solve these problems as they're happening or before they happen, you know, people aren't going to get upset 
and they're going to have a lot more headspace to think about what do I want? Not how yeah. can I deal with what's happening, but what do I want and and how do we get there? It, it just frees up so much energy and headspace and and also would change the political system greatly because then you're not then you're not you're not putting out scare campaigns and you're not appealing to in, in kind of insane emotional promises that just can't come true. You know, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you're actually you're actually it's more rational, but it's also it also puts people in this this place where they're given options and, and power. I think the other thing is, you know, if, if people again, you know, I think when we talk like this, there is this whole well, that's that's fine. But how do you pay for this? You know, if mm-hmm. if no one's working, if everyone's doing what they want, how how uh, you know, how is money going around the system? Well, it's still, you still need people to do things, right? Mm-hmm. So if you look at, say, uh, homeless, I think homelessness is actually quite a good, a good thing to, to look at from, from this point of view. Because, you know, if you can predict areas where it's, it's likely to happen, for instance, you can then use systems to, maybe find and log and track vacant premises that maybe need renovating. And then they can be repurposed to provide homes or shelter. And all of that takes work. All of that value adds to that property. If it's empty now, vacant now, not being used for anything, gets repurposed, serves a purpose, all of that then feeds back into the community, makes mm. the community better, and you get people engaging, and you know can generate other work for mm. people, you know other opportunities that were never there before, mm-hmm. and you know I think that's what we need to to focus on, and you know I think there are some real opportunities in in this area to you know turn our attention to some of the big problems. That maybe have been missed a bit. I think one of the one of the issues, actually, one of the things that really strikes me at the moment is mm-hmm. that, especially with AI, you know, it is in the news a lot, mm-hmm. and a lot of the cool stuff is, you know, robots doing black backflips and things, which isn't actually AI, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just you know sensors and things that have been around for a long time. But a lot of it is visual, and that's because it tells a good story. And I think, you know, one of the, like you, like we were saying really, you know, about your email stuff that you can't see, I think, you know, that some of the, some of the really huge opportunities are, you know, design around materials, for instance, that are new materials with new mm-hmm. properties that we've never developed before. And, you know, there, I know that there are teams working, um, research teams working in this area mm-hmm. to try and get some AI systems to, um, you know, come up with new materials with certain properties. And, mm-hmm. you know, that can make a huge difference because then we can build, say, lower-cost homes or insulate places a lot cheaper and a lot quicker than we ever could before to make spaces more habitable. So it doesn't cost a fortune to to do that. You know, we're already seeing mm-hmm. houses that are prefabricated that fold up and then can be shipped on site and put up in a few hours mm-hmm. for, you know, a small amount of money. And so I think if we can 
turn our attention to more of the things that maybe are hidden, but really value add in life, then that would be a good thing as well. I think because humanity is, you know, we're coming out of a very long past that's been very violent and really, like, not too fun. But we're coming to a point where we're questioning things and, you know, like the world economies are becoming so intricately linked that having an, an, another world war would be devastating on so many levels, not just loss of human life, but just like our interlinked economy. We're becoming more and more reliant on each other. So now we need to think about things differently. And we have a lot of opportunity to do that, to tell different stories. So we don't have to tell stories about destruction anymore. We've got a yeah. lot of that in our past, but that doesn't have to be our future. No. So, like, you know, how do we start? Because this part of your education process is about creating new stories, new ways to think, new narratives. And it feels uncomfortable, I think, because we're not used to having these types of opportunities. We don't have anything to reference. No, and I think the other thing is that it's actually quite tricky to understand as well because you can't see it. Mm. So unlike physical objects that can be pulled apart, and, you know, we do that as children. We take, you know, mum and dad go out, you get the clock, it's the heirloom, and you pull it apart to find Mm. out how it works. Can't put it back together again. (laughs) Yeah. But... You know, we, we're inquisitive like that. But the new inquisitiveness is reverse engineering software programs for kids. Um, you know, because that's really, you know, all around us and what everything that's, you know, cool in the world is these gadgets that do all this stuff. But, mm. you know, for many, it's very, very difficult to understand how any of this works. And that does put a lot of power in um, certain companies. It, it gives them too much power in a way. And it's, like you say, really it's just about education. It's, you know, a lot of these systems, look, a lot of these AI, a lot of these systems that are touted as AI systems are just smart systems. They're not really true AI, a lot of them. You know, they don't use tools and techniques that have come out of artificial intelligence research. They're mm-hmm. just actually quite smart. They've got quite a lot of data in them. And we've got a lot of processing power to search a lot of different paths. So yeah. they're just really if-then statements. If, you know, mm-hmm. this is ticked, then do this. If this is not ticked, do this. If they filled out this bit, do that bit. And so they're not actually that smart. They just seem quite smart. And if we can educate people around that so that they can start spotting the difference between a smart system and something that actually is maybe learning a little bit and adapting, then I think, you know, that's a good start, really. That's a good start because that allays a lot of fears then. If you think about, you know, going back to the Roomba, it seems quite smart when you look at it, but it's predefined rules. But we're easily fooled into thinking, wow, that is super smart. There's some real intelligence <laughs> going on there, right? Yeah, yeah. And so we start naming it and buying it birthday presents. Yeah, they, <laughs> they construct an entire inner reality for these little robots. 
Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's just understanding that. Yeah. Um, really. Yeah. Um, and I guess like any technology, I'm lucky enough to, you know, talk to, you know, quite a lot of um, the next generation, you know, coming up and because mm. they do, you know, they build some cool stuff. And they're much more aware of the issues around privacy and data and sharing because they've lived it and seen, you know, the effects of sharing photos and personal information. Um, And, you know, they're much more educated around that. So I hold out a lot of hope, really. Yeah. Yeah. I do. So more more ethical choices because the education is there through lived experience. It doesn't feel nebulous or or like it's not connected to them because they've already felt ramifications yeah directly or seen you know seen it yeah exactly yeah, yeah. most yeah. of them fairly directly but you know definitely seen it and mm. seen the effects of it mm. um you know because it's widespread and, and there's no escape from it as well and i think mm. that's the other thing with it uh, I, you know I, I think you know people that um haven't felt the pressure and need to share everything, like certain generations, mm-hmm. um, haven't really ever been targeted everywhere they go. But as soon as you start relying on tech to the extent that that's what defines you as a person, like how many followers you have, how many people mm-hmm. like what you say, and that starts defining you as a person, can that's great. Right, because it can mm. build a community and you can engage with people and never be lonely. But mm. it's also really bad because you can be targeted. So if those, what happens if those likes don't happen? What happens yeah. if people start, you know, attacking the way that you look online from every angle? And there's no way to take it down or get rid of yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and mm. so I think we are seeing generation now coming up that are well aware of those. <laughs> issues because the generation above them have unfortunately suffered at the hands of all of that and so Mm -hmm. the younger generation that are coming up now are being educated by their parents are you know schools are taking it on board and I I think we're going to see a generation that have actually become a lot more private online yeah I worked doing some work on a youth culture change project and it's really interesting. These are people from the age of 13, 14, 17, and they are very aware of the what the impact is of them posting anything. Yeah. It's you know they they really weigh it up. They really think about it. Uh, they're yeah they're extremely educated about it. And um, yeah, and and while I was interacting with them, I was thinking. You know, these are these are people that are already thinking in really complicated ethical terms. Yeah. In the ways that I wasn't when I was their yeah. age. You know, I was thinking about what I was reading. You know, so maybe really big concepts around religion or philosophy or you know things that you read about in school, like the 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 reading list that you have to go through if you're <laughs> college. You know, your college prep. You know. Uh, so, I, all these, you know, so I was thinking about these really big terms, but they're thinking on very, very directly personal levels that, that, that I'm just, that I've just started thinking about, like, let, in the, let's say, the last five years. Yeah. So, it's really interesting. 
it's almost like they don't have to think about, like consciously think about it. It's almost like, you know, they can make decisions around what they're sharing and not sharing very quickly. Yeah. And maybe the consequences of, of that as well, very quickly. I think the other thing that, that's fascinating about that is that, you know, they're, they're thinking actually quite deeply about data. And what that does is that then empowers them to, um, you know, if they do start companies, to maybe have a framework around data in them that other people don't have. And right. just think about, you know, how do we use, how do we use data for good? What do we collect on people? How do we use that? You know, mm-hmm. still going to get bad actors, but I think, you know, because they're, they thought about, they having to think about it from quite a young age, they're actually very attuned to that. And that means that they have probably used data in ways that we've never even thought of, which is really exciting. Mm. What if we do this? What if we, you know, put this technology with that technology? Mm. You know, it's really exciting. And I think, you know, we will see, personally, I think we'll see a lot of technologies being merged by new companies that have been started up out of colleges and universities with very strong data privacy and ethics because they kind of know that that's going to be the future. I always say, you know, one piece of advice I always give to companies at the end of all my talks is that if there's one thing that you need to start thinking about, it's about how you look after the data that you collect because companies are going to start living and dying on the successfulness of the way that they treat their customers' data. That's so true, and that's, no one's ever put it to me quite that way, but yeah, you're absolutely, you've really yeah, popped open a new door in my head. We're quite forgiven of existing companies. I think, you know, the Googles, the Facebooks yeah. of this world, uh, but I think new companies, they're going to have to go above and beyond on this if they're going to survive, because people mm. are going to be a lot more critical and a lot more discerning in the way that they share information, especially for services. Mm. Um, um, you know, we expect a lot more now than we used mm. to. And I think it's good advice for any company. If you can get ahead of the game, I think, uh, you know, my opinion, if you can get ahead of the game on that, then you're going to do well. And you can base, you know, your company around that kind of data ethics then yeah. I think you're going to do pretty well. You know, it's going to give you a strong footing. As long as you've got a product that people want, right? right. <laughs> That's still pretty important. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it is part of the formula. You do have to, yeah. people have to want what you've got, but if, if you've got that down, then yeah. The other side yeah. is that, that the ethical treatment of, you know, of not even well, it's it's happening across a lot of industries. People are, we've got a lot of information now at our fingertips, and we can understand the implications of what we purchase, where that goes down the supply chain. Um, we're thinking differently about everything from the food we buy to the clothes we buy to where we choose to go on holidays to the to you know, how we access information, you know, all these doors are opening up to people and they're thinking in new ways about things. 
And yeah. it's exciting. And when you look at, you know, these really young people and how they're, how they're thinking ethically from a very young age, I mean, I don't know. I don't think it's really all that bad. I don't think the robots are going to get us. <laughs> Ultimately, right, we're creating these intelligences, and they're learning from us. So if we get better, they're going to get better. That's right. And I think they, you know, going back to the beginning, in a way, of our talk, that the way that we're reflecting on the data that we're collecting and the biases that are in the data and the data that we're feeding mm. these AI systems, you know, there's a lot of work going on to make that better, to make mm. those systems, to try and get some of that bias out, which in turn means that, because in order to get that bias out, right, we need people that can spot the bias in the first place, which means a, a more diverse workforce. Mm. Um, um, in companies and people that make decisions around this because that's where that bias comes from in the first place, the, from mm. lack of diversity and lack of voices. And so companies that want to get rid of the bias out of their data and, and out of the systems that they're providing to people, the only way that they can really do that is to employ the right people to do that mm. and get a diverse, some kind of diversity to be able to spot the bias in the first place. And mm. so, you know, I, I'm really optimistic about it. But, you know, I really do think that it's, it's we're seeing, we're, we're already seeing a change, and mm. I think we'll see a sea change. One way I like to describe the future is it's like Tinkerbell. You have to believe. What you, <laughs> you know, you have to believe, and you have to clap yeah. your hands, and you have to believe, and Tinkerbell will come back to life. So, we have to we have to believe in our better natures we have to believe that we can that we'll be all right um or you know there's pragmatic 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 people like henry ford said whether you think you can or you think you can't either way you're right um so uh but this i think the steps are all there the understanding is developing and um, I'm, I'm looking for, I wish that I could live another hundred years. I really do, because I want to see what happens. <laughs> We're in a crazy moment in history, mm. you know, where, you know, space travel is coming back. We may be in a position very shortly where it's possible to get from one side of the planet to the other in a few hours. We're living in a, in a world where, you know, people that, people are being able to walk again um, mm. that had no chance and have a quality of life that they never felt possible. It's just amazing. It's an amazing, mm. incredible time to be on this planet, I think. Mm. Um, you know, really quite a fundamental shift in uh, the way that, you know, that everyone can live if we get it right now. Mm. You know? Yeah. Um, and and we'll we just mistakes. need to work hard on it. Yeah, and we'll make mistakes. We can't beat ourselves up, you know. No, we, we exactly. Will make, <laughs> we'll make mistakes. We will. Yeah. But but we have never had the, such an unprecedented ability to learn from our mistakes as we have right now. Yeah, that's right. That's our advantage. Thank you for listening to this episode of Stories Create Me. 
thank you to all my guests, and I'd also like to thank my sound designer, Kyle Barber Hoffman, for creating the magical sounds that you hear while listening. Join us next month when we'll continue to explore the stories that create our world on Stories Create Me.